Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The Democratic debate dabbled in foreign policy last night. Immigration, Afghanistan, China all got a pretty good going over. Let's talk about what the candidates are saying with Steve Clemens, editor-at-large uh, for The Hill. Steve Clemens, good to talk with you. Great to be with you, Jerome. You know, the, the debate last night, before we get into the nuts and bolts of it... Um, sprawling, the, sprawling debate. The framework is... Um, Something I wanted to mention, the um, the president has kind of gotten into every sphere of foreign policy, thrown everything up in the air, no matter where you're talking about, if it's climate, if it's Afghanistan, if it's immigration, if it's China. Um, and the, the, the essence is when the questions are thrown to the candidates, how do you fix this? How do you go about fixing this? It's a, it's a funny position to be in. Oh, I think it's it's a very tough position because not only are, are people asking how would someone fix this, but they need to say it in, in in a minute or less. And and the complexity of the challenges we have now, we've got a you know real systemic set of challenges. They've been they've been clear that there was a lot of stuff that was collapsing in you know America's position in the world, in my view. And and these things are not something you can just wave a magic wand over and and, and fix. But you're you're right. And, and I found it really interesting in, in, in what a sprawling debate it was. I and mean, we had, you know, just such a wide range of everything from healthcare to guns to, you know, to Elizabeth Warren, would you would you really pull out day one from Afghanistan? Those kinds of things were a very, very um uh big terrain for discussion. Uh the uh De- debate was interesting. We got we've got a clip here from Andrew Yang, and he started. Uh, and this was a conversation about China that he was involved with, and um, the questioner was uh, asking about you know wh- what do you do with the tariffs? How do you manage with the tariffs? And um, here's Andrew Yang. I would not repeal the tariffs on day one, but I would let the Chinese know that we need to hammer out a deal because right now the tariffs are pummeling producers and farmers in Iowa who have absolutely nothing to do with the imbalances that we have with China. A CEO friend of mine was in China recently, and he said that he saw pirated U.S. intellectual property on worker workstations to the tune of thousands of dollars per head. And he said, one, how can my workers compete against that? And two, think about all the lost revenue to American companies. So the imbalances are real. But we have to let the Chinese know that we recognize that President Trump has pursued an arbitrary and haphazard trade policy that has had victims on both sides. So no to repealing the tariffs immediately, but yes to making sure we come to a deal that addresses the, the concerns of American companies and American producers. And this is something that all the Democratic candidates are facing here. They're one, they want to say things about how China's doing bad things, but they want to do things differently. And it's, after that, it's a matter of nuance. Well, I think it, you know, Andrew Yang's answer was very confusing because he's basically saying he wouldn't take the tariffs off day one, but they're not really related to the trade issues. So um, there was a kind of uh, bizarre set of contradictions in his in his commentary. That said, what I find really missing in the in the debates on China is where is the national economic strategy to restore either 
excellent manufacturing or, you know, we're, we're, we're debating with the Chinese on steel and soybeans. Uh, where's our plan on nanotechnology? Where's our plan on, you know, next generation uh, electric vehicles and, and, and more broadly? I think what, what is really interesting is how many of the candidates fall into Donald Trump's trap that this is really about if you just throw up sanctions and stop all the goods from coming here or impede them that Americans want to buy, that that somehow creates a national economic strategy that's healthy. It absolutely does not. You and I have talked a lot about Chalmers Johnson in the past. And, you know, the one thing that Chalmers really elevated was the discussion about, you know, how nations like China or before that South Korea or before that Japan develop a national economic strategy, bring in the best and uh, uh, best minds of the country and and through government uh, support sort of weave together a national economic plan and national economic strategy. No one's having that. We're just kind of talking about whether sanctions go up or go down and what to do with the farmers. But there's no discussion about how does America maintain its place as a major uh, uh, place where innovation is here and that we compete with China head to head in a way that makes sense in the long run. Because otherwise, sanctions don't solve the underlying economic problems in this country. What did you make of Elizabeth? Warren's uh, talk about leverage, and she said, well, it's access to our market that is our leverage. We, that is how we should leverage things. Well, that's what Donald Trump thinks, too. And I, and I find it wrongheaded in the sense that, you know, there's this saying, and maybe it's my saying, that power is a function of future expectations. But the stock market looks at, you know, a company and how it's expected down the road. And what we know is that tomorrow's global middle class is not going to be growing in the United States. Uh, it's going to be growing in Latin America. It's going to be growing in certain parts of South Asia. It's going to be growing in other parts of the world. And that is the area where, you know, the China's or other major industrial powers ought to be competing. We're not paying attention to that, but that's where wealth is going to be created and we need to be oriented um, towards those. The notion that an American market somehow is going to uh, be the determinative factor in in you know what uh, China ends up doing. China right now is trying to disentangle and decrease its uh, dependence on the U.S. market. So I find Elizabeth's comments would have been useful twenty years ago. Not so much today. All right, and the, the word artificial intelligence never comes up either. Just to throw another thing, not at thing. all, not even once. And that's a big deal. The ra- the artificial intelligence race between the U.S. and China. That's right. I mean, whether it's AI, uh, quantum technology, you know, quantum uh, mechanics and quantum computing, uh, the race on data and how to more nimbly uh, manage data, autonomous vehicles, this whole new range of technologies that we see coming at us. The United States is a player in that. But what what we see right now is a kind of fight going on with more, I shouldn't, you know, get in trouble for saying this, but more trivial parts of our economy. But it seems like we are at at an abyss uh, or the edge of this, you know, major chasm uh, in trade with China that could affect all of us. What it is sending is shockwaves to the rest of the world, making it look like our president is nonsensical or that we're willing to risk so much or that we aren't investing in things like a serious strategy on AI and things where we know wealth and, and, and that's where wealth and power are going to be determined in the future. And right now, Russia is investing hugely in this. Japan is. China is. And we seem to be um, have our heads in the sand. 
I'm talking with Steve Clemens, editor-at-large at The Hill, and we're discussing the Democratic debate last night and some of the foreign policy elements. Uh, speaking of things that feel like 20 years ago, uh, Joe Biden had to defend his <laughs> uh, vote on Iraq yesterday. The fact of the matter is that, uh, you know, I should have never voted to give Bush the authority to go in and do what he said he was going to do. The AUMF was designed, he said, to go in and get the Security Council to vote 15 to nothing to allow inspectors to go in to determine whether or not anything was being done with chemical weapons or nuclear weapons. And when that happened, he went ahead and went anyway without any of that proof. I said something that was not meant the way I said it. I said from that point on, what I was argued against in the beginning, once he started to put the troops in, was that, in fact, we were doing it the wrong way. There was no plan. We should not be engaged. We didn't have the people with us. We didn't have our alliance. We didn't have allies with us, et cetera. And it was later when we came into office, the Barack turned, the president turned to me and said, Joe, when they said we had a plan to get out, he turned to the whole security team. Joe will organize this. Get the troops home. So there's Joe Biden explaining his vote on the war in Iraq in a minute. And that was a fun little bit of theater. Oh, I mean, it really is. I mean, you know, that that vote was a key vote because, of course, he was um, I think he was ranking at that time on uh, Senate Foreign Relations. Committee, and so his direction did matter. So that vote did matter. But everybody has votes like you know, like these one way or the other. I think Joe Biden, you know, also tried to come up with a brave plan in Iraq on how to you know begin creating a more federated uh, structure. It was called you know the Biden Gelb Plan, if you will, with Les Gelb, who was the former president of the Council on Foreign Relations. Um, and he's been out there, and he's been someone who has at least tried to argue in some of these cases, like Afghanistan and Iraq, is that the military. Uh, exposure that we have in these places is too great for the strategic gain they're giving the United States. So he's definitely changed, but I'm surprised that he's not talked about the many other things that he has done to, um, you know, on the on the other side to basically show that that vote was no longer the spirit or the wave that he was um, surfing. He does have this, you mentioned his idea about a federated Iraq and uh, he was talking last night about Afghanistan as, you know, several different countries put into one and that it's not coming together. It's not coming together. And um, he um, does he have a he seems to want to separate people when it comes down to making peace. Is this do you think Joe Biden, you know, really believes in pluralism? I think Biden does respect pluralism, but I think he also knows that when you look around the world, and I don't want to speak for him, but everywhere you look in the world, whether it's in, you know, the former, you know, the Caucasus, or you look in, you know, Latin America, you look even in the United States, the explosion of identity issues within states, within within states, kind of the evolution of these, uh, the Kurdish uh, uh, is another one, you know, where there's, you know, six million Kurds, Kurds. Uh, within a geographic space that overlaps Turkey and Syria and Iraq. But these uh, identity tensions are the ones that the world is really wrestling with. And so rather than to look at borders as sacred in all of these cases, I think Biden has been flirting with the idea that maybe we need to take another look at this. I don't know whether that's right or wrong, because you can create a cascading set of other problems. But it's not surprising to me that he and many others uh, begin asking the questions. If you've got nations that are essentially, you know, divided you know, along sectarian lines, 
uh, divided along ethnic lines, that maybe there needs to be some sort of reorganization. It's not a crazy idea, but it's also one that you shouldn't be um, cavalier about. It should Biden be doing better on the foreign policy issues. If he's the front runner, he's the former head of the Foreign Relations Committee in the Senate. It, it, shouldn't he look better? Yes. Uh, in short, uh, he should look better. I think that Joe Biden has an enormous amount of experience. And for some reason, he has not yet stepped up that to that next level to find a way to communicate to people about what a safer, better world would look like, what America's place would look like in that. He gets lost sometimes in the details and then he muddles the details. And his storytelling within some of these things become, you know, very sort of long drawn out discussions. And we all saw that last night. We've seen it in other commentary by the vice president recently. So, yeah, he should be doing better. I don't know if it's disqualifying, uh, but certainly it's giving people pause. Let's turn to Elizabeth Warren. She had a interesting answer on whether or not a complete withdrawal from Afghanistan without a negotiation was a good thing. And ask the question, the same one I ask on the Senate Armed Services Committee, every time one of the generals comes through, show me what winning looks like. Tell me what it looks like. And what you hear is a lot of, because no one can describe it. And the reason no one can describe it is because the problems in Afghanistan are not problems that can be solved by a military. I have three older brothers who all served in the military. I understand firsthand the kind of commitment they have made. They will do anything we ask them to do. But we cannot ask them to solve problems that they alone cannot solve. We need to work with the rest of the world. We need to use our economic tools. We need to use our diplomatic tools. We need to build with our allies. And we need to make the whole world safer, not keep troops bombing in Afghanistan. Senator Warren, thank you. That's Elizabeth Warren on Afghanistan. She also said that she would um, withdraw the troops uh, without an agreement if necessary, which, uh, you know, a lot of people are looking at what Donald Trump's doing and they have some pause about it. Well, you know, I think it is interesting. It's a bold statement from her for sure. And it's very different than where the sort of liberal left has been because there used to be the argument that American forces were in Afghanistan to help girls go to school. And that's where the Nancy Pelosi's were and others. Now, I think after 18 years into it, people are saying maybe this isn't working out. But you had a kind of bond, if you would, between the neoconservatives on the right and the uh, liberal internationalists on the left that 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 force in Afghanistan was nonetheless doing some good. I had been arguing, yes, but that's detached from America's strategic objectives and you're putting, you know, lives on the line. And, you know, ultimately, unless you solve the problem between India and Pakistan, you're never going to solve Afghanistan. So she was very clear. I found it um, surprising and bold and, uh, you know, honestly, kind of close to Donald Trump's thinking about the lack of return on Afghanistan and the inability to move the needle in any way uh, that is really going to affect America's strategic interests right now. Let's turn to um, a Bernie Sanders answer. He was asked about uh, Venezuela and socialism, and here's Bernie Sanders on Venezuela. Let me be very clear. Anybody who does what Maduro does is a vicious tyrant. What we need now is international and regional cooperation for free elections in Venezuela so that the people of that country can make and can create their own future. In terms of democratic socialism, 
to equate what goes on in Venezuela with what I believe is extremely unfair. Bernie Sanders on uh, Venezuela, and he would he would try to forge a new election, which um, Mr. Maduro probably wouldn't go for. But yeah. uh, uh, there, that's uh, he he kind of. Um, I don't know what he skirted skirted that one, and he doesn't seem to lean in the foreign policy. Uh, no, not at all. And I, you know, I think that you know his his agenda right now is healthcare, education, a domestic policy agenda, and on the kind of broader global stuff that that about America's place in the world. He kind of ducks these questions, and I think a lot of people have been concerned about you know his you know do, do, does does someone who is an avowed democratic socialist find common cause with people who purport that as they have in Venezuela in the past. There have been in the, you know, kind of in the broad think tank and intellectual left community, those that um, were disturbed, you know, frankly, by uh, some of the challenges against Hugo Chavez and others and sort of found that some of the things that were happening in Venezuela's poor. And that's kind of part of the criticism or at least the kicking of the tires of Bernie Sanders' views on Venezuela. Does he like some aspect of what Hugo Chavez and now Maduro have been doing? And I think he's been trying to say no, but he doesn't have a good answer, uh, frankly, that's realistic on what to do with Venezuela. Did last night help focus uh, people's minds on foreign policy a little more? And do, do you think it will make any difference? There's not a lot of... On foreign policy, no. I mean, I think that a, a bunch of different things came out. They heard Cory Booker. They heard, uh, you know, some folks on Venezuela. But they see a patchwork that doesn't necessarily add up to a clear and coherent view about uh, American grand strategy in the world, what fights are worth having, what fights are not worth having. What we saw is a lot of reactive pieces, whether it's on trade in China, whether it is on, you know, how to deal with, you know, we, we heard about, you know, Canada. I mean, it, it, we heard a lot of stuff that didn't hang very well together last night. So I don't think on the foreign policy side it did. What you did do is you continue to get divides. Uh, between these candidates on what they thought about health care or the role of government in the gun debate. Uh, and so they continue to show, I think, on the whole, that the domestic agenda is the one where they know they where they think the American public is going to make their decisions on on who will um, eventually become a candidate. But on foreign policy, I just have to tell you that you know, you've got some people up there who have some versatility, who know some where some capitals and countries and world leaders are, but they clearly don't have a kind of strategic breadth that I would normally want to see in a leader. Joe Biden normally does. But as you said, I would like to hear him articulate what he knows and his experience better than he's been doing. Steve Clemens is editor at large at The Hill. Thanks for joining us and talking about the Democratic debate last night. My pleasure, Jerome. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we're going to talk with Sisters of the Living Word. They're an organization in Arlington Heights. They're celebrating International Day of Peace that's coming up on the 21st and a whole lot more. We'll find out about them after the break. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell. International Day of Peace is coming up on September 21st, and among those celebrating are Sisters of the Living Word. It's an order of nuns in Arlington Heights, and they are actually neighbors of mine in Arlington Heights. I walk my dog by Sisters of the Living Word once in a while. And with me is Sister Carrie Miller, a nun with uh, Sisters of the Living Word. Great to meet you. You too, Jerome. And Sister Chioma Ahanihu is here, and she is a therapist with Chicago uh, Catholic Charities of Chicago, and she is also uh, with Sisters of the Living Word. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, oh, Thank you. Nice to meet you. Can you explain about the mission of Sisters of the uh, Living Word, Sister Kiri? Yes. Um, it's actually quite exciting, and um, our name is our mission, Sisters of the Living Word, and we try to reflect the presence of God through all that we do and all that we are. And um, the mission is to basically f- help free the oppressed and to bring new life and to bring hope to people. And we do that in such a variety of ways. It's, um, I think that's the exciting part, that every sister is able to use her giftedness to be able to, to reflect God's uh, presence in the world through the work she does. So we have people that are in teaching profession and um, others in social work uh, like Joma and others in pastoral care and a variety of things. And through it all, we just try and reflect the word, proclaim the goodness of, of our God and stand for justice and for peace. And we, through all of that, try to bring hope into people's lives. Is that the role of nuns in the world today? Because I think a lot of people think of nuns as the the old teachers with the rulers uh, and (laughs) things like that. But uh, it seems like today's nuns are are a lot cooler than that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you. (laughs) Yes, well, yes, that's the role of nuns, you know, today. Uh, We get into a lot of other, other ministries, I'll call it, you know, Sisters are still teaching. You still find a lot of sisters uh, in teaching field, but they are also in different uh, other parts of life. Um, I have sister. I have a sister, one of my sister friends, who is an anthropologist. So she goes to different parts of the world, you know, looking at fossils and all that. Some do different things. So there are a lot of people's uh, sisters now are into a lot of roles that uh, usually would have been unusual in the past, you know. Explain some of the things you're doing. You, do a, you mentioned a wide variety of things, but let's tease that out more specifically. Um, you, you work on homeless issues a lot. Yes, yes, we do. Um, because that is um, a, a symptom, a, um, a result of poverty, of um, inability to fit in with society's expectations and so much. And so one of the things that we do, it, it's a form of oppression that we address. And we try to work with families so that they can work their way out of that situation. So through mentoring and through uh, guidance and that, um, and in a variety of places, uh, it goes from everything from serving the homeless meals, which a number of our sisters do, and to working with systemic change. Mm-hmm. I think in everything that we do, we we do advocacy and work towards systemic change as well. And the the bills in Congress and so on, 
we're right there trying to make a difference that way as well because we figure if we can let people know what we stand up and believe in, all those social justice issues, that that too helps to bring about the changes that will impact the lives of people. Now, one of the things you're doing is a, a peace and justice workshop coming up on Wednesday, October 23rd, and you're going to focus on immigration, racism, and the environment. Yes. That's a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Who comes to your workshops? It's uh, You're right there in my neighborhood. Yes. Doing this. People from the neighborhood. Yes. <laughs> and from whoever else sees the, uh, the notice on the website yes. and is interested in joining with people who want to pray for about those issues and try to figure out ways that we can, in fact, be those advocates and what we do need to do to make some changes for people's lives. Uh, Chioma, you were telling me that uh, there you do um, some work on violence and uh, people um, who are uh, – there's way too much violence and mm-hmm. you're drawing attention to that in some pretty unique ways. Well, yes. Um, last year, sometime last year, uh, Sister Empty, her name is Empty. I call her Empty Kruger. So she started uh, out of school projects. She started this uh, prayer group uh, that uh, we gather every Saturday, last Saturday, uh, 9.30 a.m. And we gather in neighborhoods where there have been shootings. Uh, she chooses one of the neighborhoods and sends, you know, emails to everybody who is interested. Many sisters, Chicago sisters, uh, join in that prayer. And it's kind of drawing awareness to the violence in the community. It must yeah. be a powerful thing to be at. It is. Honestly, it is. The families that join in that prayer, they find it really healing and consoling that people are beginning to be aware of what's going on and praying for for the violence to stop. Um, last When we gathered last two weeks, uh, somewhere in Chicago, I can't remember the street now, I noticed the presence of the police there, you know, kind of nudging us. Uh, and one of the people that uh, the nephew was killed is a policeman. He served in the police for some years ago. So, yes, it's an awareness that has been drawn for, for some social change, to have this killing stop, you know, in, in our own little ways by praying with the people that are, are victims of this violence going on. Yeah. I'm talking with uh, Sister Chioma Ahaniu and Sister Carrie Miller. They're with Sisters of the Living Word based in Arlington Heights, and we're talking about some of the good work they're doing out there in the world. Um, now, you were at a conference you were telling me about earlier, and... Yes. Um, it, it makes me feel good to hear that there are big conferences of people uh, like you out there. Oh, yes. It was very exciting. Um, it's called Leadership Conference of Women Religious. And it's a national organization, and about um, more than a 1,000 communities belong to that. There were about 800 at this event in Phoenix. And it, it is what it the name says it's trying to assist leadership of the different congregations to be able to help focus um, globally uh, the the similarities between the communities and the similarity of the missions and what it takes to be leaders in today's church and in today's religious life. And I think one of the exciting things is the emphasis on collaboration and the sense of being a global community, a global community of women religious who 
make a difference in the world because of our commitment to the social justice issues and the dignity of all humans and of creation. And therefore, that's why those three things that you mentioned, uh, that we're combining those as the focus for our efforts across the country, globally united. So... uh, um Tell me more about the conference and what I mean. It must have been – these are people from different faiths? Different religious congregations of women religious. So anybody. Uh, The nuns, of nuns. Of nuns. Yes. Uh Um, So it's – and I I imagine if you get all together and uh, you feel less isolated. I mean, do you feel like there is a sense of kind of like uh, isolation sometimes and you want to see everybody? Yes, it's – it's this very deep sense of communion that uh, there is uh, such a similarity of our purpose that united we're much stronger than we are a smaller voice for smaller groups. But this way, the impact of our presence and of our word, and we've lear- we learn, we have visionaries among us that can just present a tremendous uh, insight into what's going on in our world today and where we are needed. And they help us to read the signs of the times and to know how to respond to that. And that collaborative effort of not doing this alone, but we're supported by so many. And the, the faith of all of these people together does make a difference, a powerful impact. How do you feel about... Um the community we live in. I mean, we're in, we're in Arlington Heights, and uh, do you feel like you're out there further than the community kind of is? That that you're you're advocating on on immigration, on racism, on on the environment. Do you feel like uh, the average suburban community is with you on this? Well, yes, yes. Uh, we uh, we feel that uh, you know. The people that live around us in Arlington Heights, uh, for instance, yes, they are sup- they support us. We have activities that they come to. We have what we call the associates, who are who are people that value what we value uh, in our charism, and they see that and they want to be part of that. So they become associates. We we come together and pray. We share uh, feast days. We share fun times together, and we pray together, we have fun together. So yes, they do, even though they are not sisters, but one way they are also connected with us because there are a lot of activities we are involved in, in the church and in the community, and they they are part of us. In Chicago, where I live, I live with other sisters uh, in Chicago, and I work in Chicago, so um, I also have that connection with people, my co-workers, uh, you know, uh, some of them are not even Catholics, but you know, when I talk about our life, what we do and all that. Yes, some are interested to know. Yeah. And what's your relationship with the archdiocese? How does I think probably a lot of people wonder mm-hmm. what what is how does Sisters of the Living Word re- relate to the rest of the archdiocese? Um, actually, we are a diocesan community, mm-hmm. and uh, most other communities are under uh, the Rome, but we are um, under the diocese. Um, uh, as a diocesan community. Um, Our relationship with the diocese is um, one of collaboration, 
um, one of mutual support. Um, we work with the Vicar of Religious the, uh, through the Archdiocesan Office. Um, so there is an accountability to the um, Cardinal every year by our leadership. And Do you ever get in any trouble? <laughs> no, never. Because <laughs> you guys, come on. You're, well. vo- you're volunteering at the McHenry County Jail. Mm-hmm. You're, you're doing uh, a lot of work with the Interfaith Committee on Detained Immigrants. You're doing a lot yes. of things that are, that, are, um, that are out, that are, you know. Yes, they stretch us and they stretch others. Mm-hmm. And it's, it is great. But that's part of the collaboration. Yes, we work um, ecumenically. We work... Um, interdenominationally yes. um, connected with the Viatorian community of priests and brothers who work very much with immigration efforts and uh, with other religious communities that uh, for the women who are in uh, detention centers for the men who are in detention centers uh, we we've just been to a, a beautiful prayer vigil where there were about 200 of us gathered to pray for and and be a voice, a visible uh, sign of our concern for the families at the border who have been separated Mm -hmm. and whose parents were put in detention and the kids were separated from the parents. And so that was just another way that we could stand up and be counted among those who are concerned. And when you mentioned about Arlington Heights, I think wherever we go, we invite people to to look at things uh, maybe in a different way. And just as we are stretched, we invite others to listen and learn and maybe be stretched and be able to um, be effective as, as well. Is it is it hard to spread compassion like that? I mean, you're essentially trying to spread compassion and love. Mm. You know, I think it's in us. I I think that's one of the things that we are committed to, being a compassionate presence. Mm -hmm. And we have the support of our community with that. We have the support of many others who who share that mm-hmm. that same hope. Yeah, I, I don't see it hard. It's mm-hmm. not hard to, to share compassion. I don't know if, if I find it hard. I give you an instance. Last weekend, I was coming back from San Antonio. I was in Uber. Uh, uh, and then the Uber driver, we got talking. You know, he's like, he's a single father of four children. And sometimes he doesn't even make it to, uh, you know, with the rent and, and food and all that. There and then, you know, I connected him with Catholic Charities. Come to Catholic Charities, pick up some food at least that can help you you know it's like instances like that that's it's not hard to do you know it's like a daily thing that you can just get to do yes Yes. i did the same thing at the Mm -hmm. airport the other day the person who was wheeling uh, pushing the wheelchair for one of our other sisters um was trying to just started sharing that he just was here for six months and he's an immigrant and Mm -hmm. he just didn't know how to get things all together to have the money to pay the bills and, mm-hmm. and the rent and the food. And I did exactly the same thing. And this was in uh, in Texas. And I said the same thing. Here's Let me write this down for you before you go back. Yeah. I'll, here's some phone numbers to call. Here's mm-hmm. people to look yeah. for. I think um, – I don't know. I think that's part of the spirit of our charism mm-hmm. is that there is an attentiveness to us. And we just pick up on that 
when there is a need, we're there to respond. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's not much. I'll never see that guy again. You probably yes, won't see that person won't again. See again yeah. And yet, good was done for their life, we think. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Now, I know you made a film with my friends at Bitter Jester recently. Oh, and, yes. Uh, you're, uh, you, you want people to know you're out there and to spread the word. You've got a really nice yes. website that describes everything you're doing. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And uh, people should check it out. Yes. Uh, what's the website's name again? SLW.org. Yes. SLW, Sisters of the Living Word. Org. Org. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. Well, th- it's been great meeting my neighbors. Great to see wonderful, compassionate people out there. Sister Carrie Miller is a nun with Sisters of the Living Word, and so is Sister Chioma Ahanihu, and she is a therapist at Catholic Charities of Chicago as well. Thank you very much for joining us. Keep up the great work, and I hope some people will get in touch with you and we'll spread the passion and the love. Thank well, thank you, you very much. It was, it was nice meeting, meeting you. you. Yes. yes, I listen to your show yes, every time, so it's good talking <laughs> with you face to face, yes. And I enjoyed it too. Coming up after the break, we'll have Weekend Passport with Nari Safavi, and we'll talk about some wonderful theater with you. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for Weekend Passport, where we let you know how to have an international good time on the weekends. Our global citizen friend, Nari Safavi, is here. He's got a couple suggestions for you. Good to see you, Nari. Good day, Jerome. I want to tell you about an experience that was like the most fun I have ever had on the 14th floor of a Wait. Chicago hotel, <laughs> downtown Loop Hotel. Well, I'm sorry to hear that, Nari. <laughs> yeah, I think you could find it, some, uh, some way to have more, yeah, yeah. more it's, fun it's as possible. Really, it's really an interesting event I was treated to last night, and it was uh, it's called Teatro Zinzani, and it runs through March 20th at the Cambria Hotel downtown the theater district 32 west randolph it's on the 14th floor it's a very counterintuitive place for having a show but uh, you know it was really fascinating to be there now with us is frank ferrante he is a actor and director known for his portrayal of groucho marx and he is in the show and he's going to be doing groucho on tuesday i understand yes at this very same venue at the cambria yes uh, outstanding and uh, amelia ziran brown here is she is known as rizzo she's a new york city based performance artist and is performing there as well great to meet you hi uh, thank you Good both to be here um tell us a bit more about the venue it's 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 newish it's uh not uh, it, it's kind of a something that um um i don't know it was kind of rediscovered and made up again and, and it's a it's a cool venue well, it's 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 new and it's old. Uh, it's it, it takes place in a 1920s building, as as Nari said, on the 14th floor, and you don't expect it to be there. And you think, what do you mean? It's it's on a hotel on the 14th floor. You think it's what is it? A banquet room? But it's just the opposite. It's three glorious floors that was formerly a Masonic Temple theater, 1900 seat theater. It had dropped ceilings and they gutted it, and then they 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 transported a hundred year old Belgian tent. 
and 4,000 pieces of this tent were reassembled, this 100-year-old tent, and the show takes place in this new space, in essence, uh, under this tent, and it's been art-directed, so there's chandeliers and mirrors and beautiful velvety fabric and hand-carved wood. And it's it's you don't expect it when you go up into this lobby and go into the 14th floor. Yeah, it's like entering another reality, a reality of of glitter and velvet. <laughs> and that's Spiegeltelt Zazu is called. Yeah, Spiegeltelt. Say it, say it again. Spiegeltelt Zazu. There's 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 what about thirty original Spiegel tents still traveling around the world, and really? then a couple, yeah. Then then I think you know thirty more that had been built that weren't from the original family, but yeah, they're these antique Belgian Spiegel tents that are put together like a puzzle, and they hold you know uh, two hundred to three hundred people for for dinner dancing. <laughs> <laughs> it speaks to what? I mean, how, how does that, uh, why is that a performance tent? What, what is it, what, what does it look like? What is it, what, how do you? Well, we're, originally it was for dancing in the, in the, uh, in the turn of the century, but uh, the, now it, it really, it fosters a sense of wonder. It's circular. It's, it's, it slopes up like a circus tent. It's what? made with permanent built booths. Mm. And it's a, a, a European feel. feel. It's yeah. a vintage feel. It's in the round. And so all of the acts, which are cirque, cirque acts and comedy acts, mm. I'm, a, I'm a, a comedian, as is, as is uh, Rizzo, who also is an unbelievable singer. But all of it happens within inches, as you saw, Nari, last yeah. night from your face. So you have a trapeze artist who's <laughs> literally hanging over your head. And it's very interactive. And I've been doing interactive comedy for 35 years, and He's Rizzo's been doing it for years. It. And so both of us work the audience, and the audience is right on top of you. And the and the venue serves that because it's you're so close. There's not a bad seat in this house, as you no. saw. No, it's it's a cabaret experience, mm-hmm. but it's immersive cirque experience mm-hmm. rolled into it, basically. And uh, it's. Um, I, I, it's really things happen around you, and and you get really surprised. I don't want to give away too much uh, of the ending, but you have these trapeze acts happening over your head, and then they come down and they break into an opera, and they're magnificent <laughs> opera singers too at the same time. So everybody is multi-talented and multitasking at the same time. Can you tell us some about how the talent moves in and moves out? Because I was talking with you before the show, and I, you know, of course, people can't perpetually be there. Mm-hmm. So, in your performers, and you go other places and yeah. do other gigs. Uh, so, how does that work with the performance that people see there? We have a, a, a worldwide cast of um, specific acts that that can work in this environment, which is to have that specialty act, but also be able to smoothly work into the fabric of an entire show, which is interactive work while people are dining. The 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 acts come in and, and do little bits at the table. It's very, you know, you walk away really having close-up experience with many of these talents. And the thought is to keep changing it up so people can come back month after math, month and hopefully year after year. I think there's a 20-year lease and there's a, we have a lot of hope that we'll be there for a long time. And as, as Rizzo was saying, the act, it is a worldwide yeah. uh, experience in that we have acts from, from everywhere. And, and Teatro Zanzani has employed acts from you name it. it just about from ev- Russia, from everywhere. You yeah. have one of yeah. your colleagues is a, is a gentleman uh, who is vertically challenged from Montreal <laughs> and he does a really interesting uh, bit which is really more like uh, performance art in with the garbage yeah. from from Chicago and, right. and him becoming King Kong <laughs> yeah. and and the doll is mm-hmm. like a uh, it's Faye a, Ray yeah exactly right. yeah he's Joe DePaul he's one of the best clowns in the in world, in the world yeah. really right. teaches clown and works and directs for Cirque du Soleil 
I'm, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a thrill to be surrounded by this caliber of talent and great humans to, to boot, yeah. which makes a difference. And I think the audience picks up on the spirit yeah. uh, that we all come from different worlds, and yet to, we're together, we're one, we're unified for that moment, and the audience can't help but feel the joy and the connection we have. And I hope, I hope you felt that, Nari, when you were there, that, that we're, kind of, we're, we're a, kind of this bizarre Fellini-esque family. Uh, yeah, that is definitely. Yeah, you guys redefine the family, but you're definitely a family. <laughs> we're a found family. I'm Mama, and he's Papa. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> we're talking about Teatro Zanzani. It is at the Cambria Hotel on Randolph Street on the 14th floor. And it's uh, this group stays through March of 2020. How do you do this? This exact group actually ends at the end of the month. So September 30th is the last date for this group. I stay uh, until November 10th. Another uh, so half of half of this group. Um, has to go on to other work and we get another uh, infiltration of fresh blood and then, <laughs> that's the start of October really yeah right. the start of October and then we you know we'll be using the next couple of weeks to to figure out how to weave uh, weave their particular talents into the show that we've made already because they're very different we've got a world class illusionist coming from oh. Russia from Russia we've got who um, who else and Kevin Kent who's well, also one of the pr- premier Improv c- comics of the, the country, and so yeah. it's it's going to be special. Yeah, yeah, I yeah, bet, yeah, I yeah. bet that's going to be fascinating. And of course, it, a meal is served too, mm-hmm. and you know, and uh, I understand the catering company uh, is uh, run by Debbie Sharp, mm-hmm. a Chicago, a Chicagoan yeah. uh, of a long time. And uh, so, uh, what are uh, how how do our people responding to the, all of this in Chicago? Oh I mean, you get you get to converse with people afterwards. Well, yeah. it's it's you know it's it's been incredible. The the press and the media has been unbelievably supportive, which we're grateful for. Yeah. But and and but more than that, the audiences are take. We don't you know you don't know what to expect. You don't. You know we've done the show in San Francisco. We've Seattle. done it in Seattle. I've done this role in in Amsterdam. But uh, you know it's got in, it's got. I, I hate to speak in these terms sometimes, but it's got a, it's five star ratings from the public, which is telling us that the locals, Chicagoans, are responding to this type of humor, yeah. which, and, and a lot of it's humor. I think it's, a, um, it's comedy and beauty acts, really, mm-hmm. elegant acts, and, and we yeah. represent really the comedy mm-hmm. portion of it. And it's a brash comedy. And I think it's a tradition that audiences are familiar with that goes back decades uh, in the vaudeville tradition, mm-hmm. burlesque tradition. Yeah. It's, a, it's a theatrical evening. And I, I live in that. I, I was inspired by the Zero Mostels and the Groucho Marxes and Sid Caesars and Milton Berle. Yeah. So that's what I bring to it. Mm-hmm. And I think Rizzo also has the same kind of attack from like a Sophie Tucker to yeah. a Mae West, completely original people, pioneers, and she puts her own spin on it. And I'd like to think I do too with my own weirdness. I, you were so nice and compared me to Peter Sellers. I'm going to – I'll live on that one for a while. <laughs> <You're right. laughs> the, journal. No, no, the early part of what uh, your act reminded me of Peter Sellers, especially, specifically in the movie The Party, actually. Oh, yes. So uh, – and that was uh, – no, and, and there's definitely Zero Mostel and, yeah. and all of that. But you have your own signature on it Thank too. You. So it's it's all like you know references going – and it's definitely got a sort of a going back in time element mm-hmm. to all of this. Yes. and. Uh, 
a little bit of that abusive humor that's kind of, you know, politically incorrect <laughs> right, humor that right. we've just kind of, uh, it's almost becoming alien to us and it's nice to be reintroduced <laughs> to it in such a but civilized way. But I wouldn't say way. that it ever crosses the line of, <laughs> yeah. no, we, no, we no, aren't no, interested no. In, in capitalizing on any racist humor. No, 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 it doesn't go past those red lines, right. but right. just. But it's got a brashness to it yes. like, and, a, and a, a little bit of an edge, which Definitely I think is. Definitely sexuality. I, I'm a mass seducer. Yeah. That's my job. I seduce <laughs> on a mass level, and I'm I'm always interested in how how sex can be introduced actually, to a group. Actually, in one of your interactions last night with one of the guests, you said, "Now we're entering the lawsuit territory." <laughs> <laughs> so things do, do, do things go wrong? Do, do you have interactions? And, and I mean, people drop plates. People are eating food. Yes. What do you, there, yes, there's all, there must wrong. be chaos. <laughs> There is chaos. Chaos is woven into, I'd say, the very being of Zinzani. We, uh, the 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 tenets of of the show. The show's called Love, Chaos, and Dinner. So yeah, the subtitle. That's right? the yeah. That's the title of it. So we we do embrace chaos and um and actually choreograph chaos. So then when actual chaos happens, it is embraced. When plates drops things like I shout Mazel Tov from yeah. across the room. When um I mean I've had definitely. Men who maybe don't want to be pushed so far into my <laughs> cleavage, right. um, but um, one out of a thousand. One, yes, it's very rare. But you know, I had one the other night who, like, who apparently wrote on a comic card. Perhaps the audience involvement is a little too much. He was the guy. <laughs> but, but, and I it's think. rare, and it's funny. Where what you ask how people are responding? We're getting returnees already. We yes. already have like oh, Zenzani oh, heads, come followers, which is really one really. Wonderful. Well, you find your audience, and usually, in the audience yeah. for this are, are people who really do enjoy being alive, being feeling like they're in the middle of something, feeling that they're close, that, that mm-hmm. they're eating their salad underneath a world class act. It's it's a rare experience, and it's surprising. You, we don't know what's going to happen from night to night, and the audience doesn't know what's going to happen from night to night. And there's in that way, it's exhilarating. Yes. I think for you, to, I mean, you didn't know what was coming. I, I made a pledge to you. I, I knew who you were in the audience. I said, <laughs> "I said, Nari, believe me, you're safe. I won't pull you up there." I said, I said, <laughs> but but it's that interaction that yeah. that is really thrilling. That's what keeps us coming back and so excited to do it. We don't know what we're going to do. Yeah. Teatro Zanzani. It's at the Cambria Hotel, 32 West Randolph, and um, people can have dinner the whole bit. It's been great to meet you. Frank Ferrante uh, is doing Groucho on Tuesday. Do you got a quick Groucho joke for us? One morning, I shot an elephant in my pajamas. How he got in my pajamas, I don't know. The classic. N- not beautiful. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, Rizzo's here, Amelia Zirin-Brown. Uh, you want a song? <laughs> yeah, quick. All right. Whatever Lola wants, Lola gets. And the seduction begins. Nari Safavi, thanks for another great weekend passport. It's a privilege to be here. <laughs> Next week, we're launching into uh, our series on climate. We're going to be talking with Extinction Rebellion and the Sunrise Movement uh, tomorrow, or Monday, rather, on the program. And uh, the Global Climate Strike is Friday, so we'll have a week of programming on climate next week on Worldview. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. 